electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. Senate Republicans boycotting a vote on the president's Fed nominees. Senator Kevin Kramer describes his ethical concerns about the nominee for the Fed's powerful banking regulator. This one stinks big time because we have actual evidence that she made one and a half million dollars off of a you know, a a stock trade after lobbying the KC Fed for preferential treatment. And former Levi's executive Jennifer Say out after 20 years at the company. What happens when personal beliefs clash with the professional? I don't think this is an issue of necessarily aligning with the company or not being progressive enough. It shouldn't be a condition of employment to 100% align with your employer's views. Those interviews today, plus big changes at the FAA, tech stocks may be losing their luster, and Russia says it's pulling back troops from Ukraine, but NATO allies claim the opposite. You know, the the term gaslighting, it's a great term. I realize I've been doing it for years. Just realize that? It is Thursday, February 17th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. I'm not calling Putin. I have no plans to call Putin right now. Do you think you made a final Gentlemen, we have some breaking news just out from Reuters on the Ukraine front. The United States envoy to the United Nations says that there is evidence on the ground that Russia is moving toward what they are calling an imminent invasion. They say that this is a crucial moment. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has changed his travel plans last minute to speak at a U.N. Security Council meeting today. This is a moment of peril for the lives and safety of millions of people, as well as for the foundation of the United Nations Charter and the rules-based international order that preserves stability worldwide. This crisis directly affects every member of this council and every country in the world. This has all been following up on news that we've been hearing from Russia throughout the morning, saying that they are, in fact, on the front line, and it will take them some time to remove the troops after the United States called them out, saying they have not seen any troop movement moving away from that. The Kremlin says, with a straight face, It's seriously concerned about a flare-up in violence in eastern Ukraine. May have to do something about that, I guess is what they're implying. It also says, you know, it takes weeks to deploy forces for military exercises, and it's going to take time to withdraw them. It can't be done in a day. I was reading your paper again today, uh, Andrew, on the front page, New York Times, where where we just cop to it. We say, look, to some extent, the battle between the West and and Moscow has been all about signaling. We keep signaling that an attack is imminent to keep pressure, international pressure on Russia to try to prevent it. They keep signaling that they're moving back or, or, you know, the, the term gaslighting, 
I didn't realize, it's a great term because it describes a lot of things. And I realized I've been doing it for years, uh, gaslighting. <laughs> just but, realize that? <laughs> just realize it. But the, 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 is that not gaslighting that they see? Well, they're concerned look, about violence concerned in about Eastern violence, Ukraine. And this That's is the, the pretext. pretext. This is if, the pretext that we've been waiting that for. If it turns out that they're lying about withdrawing troops, yeah. and if it turns out that, I mean, some of this looks so obvious, it almost looks like a bad like soap opera because they expect us to believe this patently false propaganda. And I guess, you know what? That's Russia. That's the Soviet it's, Union. That's what we've been seeing for, for decades well, and decades and decades. If they finally uh, do invade, this is just really distasteful. Look, the, 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 other, you know. the other concerning thing is that Andrew pointed out earlier this week they wouldn't do it during the Olympics because he doesn't want to offend President Xi of yeah. China, who's his new his friend. New well, guess what? We're getting to the end of the Olympics. Does it look like they're adding troops? Yep. Does it look like they're pulling back? <sighs> yeah, but if it, if it they really do play us. But then I worry that we're getting played by... It's not know, us they're we, playing. We it's, play our own. We don't, we're not getting played by... by our own uh, administration, Ari, about whether. But it's you think that we're that we're playing them? I don't. No. I, mean, I don't I, think it's an equal. They say it's signaling, signaling on both ends, and and it is somewhere the truth is in the middle. Yeah, but gaslighting is like gaslighting is like it's raining Doing, outside, and I tell you it's it's right. sunny somehow, and and right. I mean that's and that's no, sort of what's no. happening here. I, I no, think we no, don't know what Putin's where thinking. This is uh, suddenly it, it's like there's still hope that a conflict, Moscow says, can be averted. You are the conflict. What are you talking about? There was nothing going on on that border until you sent 150,000 troops there to begin what might be a conflict. What do you mean a conflict might? What's the con? And then they say, well, there's some things happening in eastern Ukraine that, that we're uncomfortable with. Violence in eastern Ukraine? Well, is what, what, what about the idea business? that the Duma just said this week that they want right. to recognize those separatists? separatists in eastern Ukraine. Like, what, what do they think is happening there? Well, if it finally happens, you know, all the stuff, the poisoning, the disappearances of the people, Navalny, all these things, this is a bad regime. I guess, you know, a billion-dollar palace, you know, on the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. it, 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 all these things are, this is a pretty net. I'm afraid. I don't want to get a, an umbrella, an umbrella stuck up my rear for, for saying it. Do you remember that? Yeah. Like a poison in London. Them. Yeah. But, uh, oh, I don't yes. know, bad you know actors. What? Bad actors. A surprise announcement from the FAA late yesterday. Administrator Steve Dixon is resigning just halfway through his term. Phil Lebeau joins us right now with more on that front. Phil, good morning. Good morning, Becky. Steve Dixon's resignation is effective March 31st. He sent a letter to President Biden. In it, he said, it's time to go home. He also sent an email to the staff uh, at the FAA outlining his reasons for stepping down. He says it's purely personal that he wants to spend more time with his family. In the email, Dixon says, after sometimes long and unavoidable periods of separation from my loved ones during the pandemic, it is time to devote my full time and attention to them. This has been a rough two and a half years for the FAA, and Steve Dixon has been front and center as they have taken uh, really a lot of heat for what happened with the certification of the 737 MAX, which, by the way, all of that happened before he became the head of the FAA. But his tenure was marked by the 737 MAX grounding. Remember, he was called to Capitol Hill a couple of times where lawmakers said, what's going on at the FAA? How is this plane approved? He was also cracked, uh, and that's part of the criticism for the lack of oversight on the MAX. If you take a look at shares of Boeing, remember, just a couple of days ago, the FAA took away self-certification status 
from Boeing when it comes to the 787 Dreamliner, which the FAA has been in discussions with Boeing since May of last year about the manufacturing and inspection protocols of new 787 Dreamliners before they can be delivered. And that's why we haven't had a delivery of a Dreamliner since last May. So this has been a rough two and a half years. Remember, when he was appointed by President Trump shortly after the second 737 MAX crash, he was appointed for a five-year term. And that five-year term is only halfway over. But he's decided, I've had enough. It's time to go home back to Georgia. He worked at Delta, by the way, before he was appointed to run the FAA. Guys, back to you. Phil, what's this mean for the industry right now? Well, a little bit of turmoil as the Biden administration will take some time to figure out who it wants to appoint as a new head of the uh, agency. That's going to take some time, several months, I would suspect. And in the meantime, uh, they will tell you, and I've talked with people at the uh, FAA, and they say, look, we go forward with business as usual, but there are a lot of things that need to be resolved, most notably what's happening with Boeing and the 787 Dreamliner. That's front and center. But you've also had the unruly passenger issue, the mask mandates, uh, the, the squabble between the airlines and the telecoms over 5G. That certainly has been a pressing issue over the last couple of months. Uh, so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done and a whole host of future technology issues that need to be uh, addressed in some fashion over the next couple of years. Hey, Phil, and I, and I, I apologize for my own ignorance on that on this. Historically, when the, the head of the FAA has been named, and I'm now thinking about six possible successors, they have come from inside the FAA, they've come from outside. How important is it for the, from the continuity perspective, given what's happening in Washington right now in this administration, would you ever pick somebody from inside right. uh, industry? Sure, how, it's how do you possible. see the sort of succession game playing out? It's a mix, Andrew. There's no uh, certain way that it always happens. It is a mix. There have been people who have come from within the FAA. And by the way, the deputy administrator, Bradley Mims, he was appointed by the Biden administration. Is it possible that they say, look, we like what we see with Bradley Mims. We want him to be the head of the FAA. Sure, that's a possibility. Is it also possible they could go outside of the agency and pick somebody with an aviation background, uh, maybe who works for an airline? Sure, that's a possibility as well. Or someone who did work for an airline. Those are all possibilities that are there. Um, so there's no blueprint, if that's what you're asking. There's no blueprint for how this process will play out for picking a successor. Phil LeBeau with the news this morning. Appreciate it. Our producers and writers uh, are watching the shares of NVIDIA. Earnings of $1.32 a share beat estimates. Uh, revenue jumped 53% from the prior year, also beating the street. I'll tell you who is watching it. It's that madman, Jim Cramer. I saw him tweeting about it. Uh, said uh, he's liked it, what do he say, for 3,000% or something? He's liked it. Becky, did you see that tweet? I, I, I didn't see. I mean, I just know he talks about it constantly. I didn't see it this morning. When I get up in the middle of the night to do whatever. You check Twitter uh, at that point, like midnight? I check Twitter all the time to see what if Kramer's up and to think, what this guy? Usually yeah. is. Yeah, I check it just yeah. to, okay, really? Jim, 1.30 a.m. Oh, my goodness gracious. I, you know, when I was nursing after uh, one of my pregnancies, I would be up every three hours. And I would sit and I would do the same thing. I'd be on Twitter because I'd be there for a while. <laughs> and Jim was up all the time. And I got into this game where I'd say, yeah, I'm up too. You know, I, I don't you do know that what, anymore because there's no way I can win. You know what you should not do is hit Wordle because then your mind <laughs> you is... you start thinking and you can't go back to because sleep. Because it's ready to go at that time. 
Next, on Squawk Pod, the GOP is preventing a vote on President Biden's Federal Reserve nominees, parsing the politics and the ethics with North Dakota Senator Kevin Kramer. We're denying them the opportunity to even have a vote on Sarah Bloom Raskin over the ethical cloud that hangs over her head because it's, frankly, I don't know why they want that, the baggage that comes from an, an insufficient or a rushed judgment to confirm her. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. President Biden's picks for the Federal Reserve Board are in limbo, indefinitely, as Republicans on the Senate Banking Committee vow to block a vote of Fed nominee and former CNBC contributor Sarah Bloom Raskin. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs will come The committee had met earlier this month. The Honorable Sarah Bloom Raskin is nominated by the President of the United States to be Vice Chair of Supervision on Raskin's nomination to a powerful bank regulatory role. Thank you, Chairman Brown, Ranking Member Toomey. But now, stalemate. The issue at question is the Kansas City Fed granting a master account to a fintech firm where Raskin served as director. Raskin had served on the Fed board previously, as well as the Treasury Department before moving to the private sector. Senator Toomey told Spockbox yesterday he wants answers about her possible advocacy. We can't get answers to important questions. She, frankly, did a terrible job responding to the written questions that we submitted. And we've got a lot of questions about her role and the Fed's role, frankly, in Reserve Trust, a fintech company based in Colorado, eventually obtaining a Fedmaster account. Democrats have called this a smear campaign. Committee Chair Sherrod Brown accused Republicans of walking out on their job. Now Republicans have fled the room, hiding rather than voting on a fair and experienced nominee. Sarah Bloom Raskin has been confirmed, as I said, twice by the Senate unanimously. Nothing about her or her approach to this job has changed. The Banking Committee is evenly divided, with 12 Democrats and 12 Republicans. In order to advance the nominees to the floor of the full Senate for a confirmation vote, the committee requires a quorum of 13 members. With Republicans not even in the room, they don't have that. And this doesn't just affect Raskin. None of the other four Fed nominees can move forward either, including Chairman Powell, up for a confirmation vote on a second term. Which means, at this point, it's unlikely that the new Fed board would be in place before that pivotal March meeting of the FOMC, when we expect a change in accommodative pandemic-era policy. Squawk Box anchors Joe, Becky, and Andrew had a lively discussion about it this morning with a member of the Banking Committee. Joining us now uh, with his take, Senator Kevin Kramer, he's a Republican North, uh, from one of the Dakotas. I still get them mixed. I want to visit both. Isn't uh, Badlands are in one and, and Rushmore's in the other? And where's Wall Drugs? Is that in your state? 
<laughs> Wall drug is in South Dakota. Oil is in North Dakota. Okay, that's I the easiest it. way to remember. Uh, you know what? Uh, I, I, they're on. That's definitely on my bucket list. So, how long is this continue? And, and you know what? We should point out, Senator, this is not unprecedented. Um, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Senate Dems boycott that uh, committee vote. Um, Scott Pruitt, the former EPA. Uh, uh, administrator. Republicans got that through despite a Dem boycott of the, of the committee. Uh, Mnuchin and Tom Price also boycotted, uh, or Democrats wouldn't vote on it. But eventually all of this happened, all those people got uh, finally confirmed, but never in a 50-50 Senate. Can you uh, actually prevent Sarah Bloom Raskin from, from getting this appointment? Well, it, it remains to be seen, I think, but it, the, the easy way to move things forward would be to take the Sarah Bloom Raskin nomination, which is a very important one, that's a 10-year um, appointment to the to, uh, supervisor, and uh, that's a, set that aside, we could move on the five other Fed nominations, uh, well, really four Fed nominations and then one for uh, the Federal Housing Agency, and we'd be happy to vote on all of those. Not that we would vote for all of them, but we'd be happy to vote on them. Each committee has their own rules, Joe, so each committee is a little bit different. So we did, what we did by not attending the business meeting where the markup would take place is we denied the, the Democrats a quorum. And that's, that's one of the rules that, that uh, in a 50-50 Senate, the minority has. There are different reasons. But if, 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 if the chairman would just separate it out, that, yeah, but that, um, we could they move won't forward. Do that. And by the they, way. They we, won't do that because that's, a, that's acknowledging that, that maybe they don't get Sarah Bloom Raskin through. They, they want to keep up but, a, but they a, ought a, to a united acknowledge front. That, Joe. Yeah. It, it is, but they ought to acknowledge that because we're doing Democrats a big favor. All we're asking for are further answers to really important questions not about you. Sarah Bloom Raskin. Not you. You want you you right. just think that I, by definition she she's going to use the the Fed to debank um, the fossil fuel industry and you're from well you know, listen I'm a no vote for that reason she wants to she's been very clear she wants to reallocate capital away from legal commerce and especially the fossil industry and by the way so does Lael Brainerd Lael Brainerd's um, you know uh, rhetoric hasn't been quite as harsh but her position has been. And uh, so those are reasons to vote no. Both but, of them. But we're, we're not denying that. We, we're denying them the opportunity to even have a vote on Sarah Bloom Raskin over the ethical cloud that hangs over her head because it's, frankly, I don't know why they want that, the baggage that comes from an, an insufficient or a rushed uh, judgment to, uh, to confirm her when she, her issue is very, very serious. This revolving door issue where the KC Federal Reserve changed the decision on offering a master account to her fintech company that she joined the board of after being a, a Fed governor and a treasury official. That's a serious, serious question that is yet to be answered properly. When it was finally answered by the KC Fed, they said well, they reversed their decision for two reasons. And one of them is, is that the Colorado Division of Banking re, you know, redefined a, what a bank is. And, the, and that, of course, as you know, because you all reported it just yesterday, I think, uh, the Colorado Division of Banking denies that. They, they call it a misrepresentation. So uh, we're really doing the and administration a favor a by delaying of, uh, her confirmation. Yeah, I think she had she got shares in that, in, in that entity, too, and, and um, 
worth, granted, almost $1.5 made, made, made a million and a half, yeah. Million, yeah. And, and with a lot of increased scrutiny on everyone in Washington in terms of interest. It, so, but there sure is. You figure if she's able to answer that effectively, do you think she uh, eventually gets a, a conference? Not from you because of your other concerns, but is it possible to answer that effectively? This, this the well, phone the, call to the Kansas City Fed. Yeah, well, and there's one of the problems. The Kansas City Fed has not provided the documentation as to why they reversed their decision and gave fin the fintech company um, Reserve Trust this very coveted master account at the Federal Reserve. When they do that, that doesn't mean that it's going to change a bunch of minds. I actually think, you know, the scandal that you guys reported that, that uh, the Fed's uh, decision and rationale does not match up with what they are saying with the, the uh, Colorado Division of Banking, I think that adds a, more of a cloud. I'm not really sure that every Democrat could support that. Remember, Elizabeth Warren comes into most banking committee meetings when, when there's a, a nominee in front of us and spends five minutes berating them if they've ever worked for a corporation in their life or if they ever plan to work for a company again in their lives. So this revolving door thing is, she's, she's been the number one um, opponent to revolving doors and this one stinks big time because we have actual evidence that she made one and a half million dollars off of a you know, a, a stock trade after lobbying the KC Fed for preferential treatment. Senator, I, I, I absolutely agree with you when it comes to the issue just of the revolving door in, in the broadest context. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, maybe a more philosophical question about the issue of debanking sure. uh, and debanking certain industries, mm -hmm. not necessarily government mm -hmm. on, from a government mandate perspective, but from an individual private um, business perspective. How do you feel yeah. about banks making decisions about whether it's oil, gas, whether it's guns, whether it's something else. Well, I introduced the Fair Access to Banking Act. I think if you're an FDIC-insured bank, if your backstop is the taxpayers of this country, categorically excluding entire industries that are legal commerce is wrong, and you shouldn't be allowed to do it. That said, I think on an, a case-by-case -case basis, the assessment of risk is obviously an important part of banking, and I think banks ought to have some leeway to do that, but the risk assessment should not be a categorical exclusion of entire industries. Senator, so, but this is where it gets more complicated. Um, and I understand why mm -hmm, you would support sure. banking, for example, oil and gas, or, or, or maybe the gun industry. Mm -hmm. For example, should a, bank, should a bank be able to decide that they don't want to support the pornography? industry would you would you would you support them they, deciding that or the or the gambling if, if they wanna, industry um, I would support that if they have a moral obligation or a moral objection to that and and there's a risk assessment that says hey this you know this has risk reputational risk and, and other things I think that's certainly relevant obviously I would support that but there's a big difference between the pornography industry and 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 providing enough energy to to grow an economy and to secure a nation and a world that very very big gap between those examples but, yeah, but I, Senator then, I, look, then you get to then you get to then you get to debanking the meat industry if, if certain entities that, that think you know PETA industry you, you can Andrew you're on to something I, I disagree with you because you always you always say fossil fuels and guns, you don't want to defund Planned Parenthood, do you, Andrew? I mean, t t take some of your pet causes, Andrew. Do you want to now, defund those? Is that going to be all, okay? These are not my pet causes. Well, you've got Joe, plenty of them. You've got plenty of them. Well, the you always mention fossil fuels and guns. Why don't you mention well, something that, at the other I just, side? I raised the issue of pornography. I raised the issue of pornography. 
Or, or by the it's way, lending slope. to an abortion clinic. Right. It's lending exactly. to an abortion clinic. Right. Think about Joe. that. It's a slippery slope, and and you don't want. I don't and, think we want to go down that slope. Do you? But this. Well, I, th- I think it's a very interesting. Look, I don't know if you saw uh, the bank that was uh, loaning money to the CEO of uh, Mr. of uh, Mr. Pillow. Pillow was <laughs> was effectively yeah. just debanked. Right. On, on a, and they decided that he, he was a, so nice. they decided he was a reputational risk. He's an insurrectionist, supposedly. I know he's an insurrectionist. I, I believe that the bank has the right to decide on okay. a, as a well, private institution it, it that they are reputational. And, and there, there are other back, companies back and, and industries, you. possibly within within the industry of guns. Look at where look Remington just spent uh, eight, spending eighty seven million dollars to settle a case. Uh, for Sandy Hook, that's a reputational risk. Yeah. Had you but, had you supported that? Andrew, Mike, Mike, Mike Lindell and My Pillow is a specific borrower, a specific business, not an entire industry. What, what if that bank said, "Well, we're not going to fund any pillow companies because we're against pillows"? That, that's what I'm talking about. It, not not an individual company. But anyway, I, I used to be a soccer referee. Re, in, being between you two guys is a piece of cake compared to it's that. It's just you know. <laughs> one one person's, I mean, look at this country right now. If one side defunded everything they wanted to defund and the other side defunded everything that they wanted, to, there won't be anything left because it's opposites. Senator Kramer, uh, thank you. It's good to, it's uh, like good to have you on. North Dakota, right? Where's Here, Fargo? Thanks, guys. Oh, I want to go to Fargo because I speak. in North Dakota. <laughs> That's in North. Real we good. all talk like that. You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> you betcha. Okay. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the fine line between the individual and the employee. Former Levi's executive Jennifer Say says speaking up on her personal views clashed with her corporate role. The issues at stake here are not just kids, but free speech more broadly. And accepting a package to stay silent would fly in the face of that, in my mind. That's right after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Stand Becky by. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We have a big interview coming up this morning. Former Levi's brand president Jennifer Say joins us following her decision to resign from the company after more than 20 years. She says the company pressured her to stop speaking out about her views around COVID-19 restrictions. She'll be with us to talk all about it. Oh, no. Andrew, you're doing that interview? It's I, I, oh, I've no. been trying to get this interview going for oh, the last no. couple she of know, days. Does she know how you feel? She came out publicly. Uh, and she's, com- she's really coming on? She's okay. really coming All right, on. See. All right, let's see what happens. She's that really coming good. on, and, I can and just it's sit, fascinating. I can just sit back. I mean, we're going to go through the whole backstory of it. I can just sit back. Good. Good. She, she can, she, she and, can take and that side. And what's also fascinating about Jennifer, just so you know, Joe, is that she is, you could argue, apolitical in the sense that she was actually one of the people behind Levi's decision to speak out against guns just two years ago. So she's been on uh, both maybe political sides of two very contentious issues. But we're going to talk about think, all that with her in just a little issues, bit. I don't think of either of those issues being confined to Republicans versus Democrats. After more than 20 years with the company, former Levi's brand president Jennifer Say says that people at the apparel giant pressured her to stop advocating against pandemic-driven school shutdowns in San Francisco. In an essay published Monday on Barry Weiss's Substack, 
She announced her resignation, says she turned down a million dollar severance package so she could tell her story. Levi says since she since say resigned that she wasn't eligible for severance or offered that package. A company spokesperson saying that Jen's statements about COVID-19's public health measures undermine the guidelines we were following to ensure the health and safety of our employees and customers and all of our leaders and especially executive officers have a responsibility to put our values and the health and safety at the forefront of their actions. This was especially true during the global pandemic. This all raises questions about free speech and who gets to say what in their personal and professional lives. And this morning, Jennifer Say joins us to discuss all of this. Jennifer, uh, thrilled to have you on the broadcast. I was fascinated uh, to read your essay and your experience. I want to go through it, but uh, speak just to this. You decided to resign. The question is, did you resign or do you really think that they effectively pushed you out and fired you? I was absolutely pushed out. It was made very clear to me that there was not a place for me going forward, um, given the controversial nature of what I had said over the last two years about kids in schools. I made the decision to leave on my own, um, on my own accord and on my own terms so that I could speak freely. Uh, I feel like, you know, the issues at stake here um, are not just kids, but free speech more broadly. And accepting a package to stay silent would fly in the face of that in my mind. Um, and so I, I didn't want to accept that package. I wanted to leave on my own terms. Jennifer, um, like you, uh, I imagine I, I hate the idea of mob rules, but I also recognize uh, that context matters and that when you work at a company, uh, you may have to follow both the rules and the values that that company espouses. Levi's, I think if we're being candid, has always been a relatively uh, liberal and progressive company. And so I'm curious how you reconcile those things. Well, I've been a liberal and progressive person. I've been a Democrat my entire life. I've been outspoken in the past on liberal and progressive issues, um, including common sense, you know, gun laws, racial equality. Uh, I'd been very outspoken on these things, and those were all deemed acceptable. I even been outspoken about Democratic candidates I supported, which included Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic primary. And so I don't think this is an issue of necessarily uh, aligning with the company or not being progressive enough. But I, I would argue it shouldn't be a condition of employment to 100 percent align with your employer's views. And I don't think that's a viable path forward. Um, a lot of people work in companies. There's a lot of different views and it, it shouldn't be controversial or an HR violation to stand up in defense of children. Well, and this is the question, it's, I, I, I think, and by the way, I, I wasn't questioning your, your politics per se, but really questioning more uh, the issue of being inside a company that clearly has a particular view. The company had taken a, a position, if you will, when it comes to COVID and vaccinations, and then being not just privately outspoken, meaning speaking maybe to either company leaders or to, to, to school leaders privately, but to doing it publicly. And I should also say, not only did you do it publicly, and, I, and this is a very interesting philosophical sort of question, uh, whether people should be held to account or uh, whether people should even think about this. Your husband was speaking out quite vociferously online as well, and that raised all sorts of other concerns inside the company. Again, the question is where, where, where the line and the bar should be for all of this. Yeah, I think that is the question, and I think it's complicated, and I think it needs to be resolved. I would make the case that I did not undermine company guidelines. I am, in fact, vaccinated. I tested when necessary. 
uh, to be at work. I masked at work. I encouraged my staff to do the same. So everything I was outspoken about was something the company had, in fact, not taken a stance on. I was not in conflict with it. And in fact, when I was very vocal about schools, public schools needing to be open in San Francisco, many of our executives had their kids in school. It was private school. So they weren't opposed to sending children to school. They were opposed to taking a stance that conflicted with where the Democratic Party was standing in deep blue cities, which was closed public schools. The line is complicated. I, I agree with you. It is a very sort of messy situation. But as you all know, companies are taking a stand around diversity and improving the diversity of their workforces because there is value in that. Diversity um, enables us, a company, to align better with our consumers and our fans. And I would say that has to include also diversity of viewpoint, not just racial and gender diversity. So, but here's the question. This is the part I don't know the answer to. So I understand, I think everybody should be able to have their own, their own personal views. The question is when those personal views are in conflict either with the company or, as I said, there can sometimes be these mob rule situations. But when, it, when an individual at a company takes a quote-unquote public position, right, takes to social media, uh, other places, and is very vociferous with their, with their view publicly, and if it's in conflict with what the company thinks, how the company should handle it. I was thinking to myself about Apple. If an employee at Apple uh, started deriding China, publicly. Um, and I'm sure there are people inside Apple who have real questions about the human rights issues in China. I wonder what would happen. And I wonder what the policy should be. And it's not to say that people shouldn't have these views or should be able to speak out about these views. The question is, if you want to speak out about these views, should you work at those companies? I mean, the companies that are working with people that you may not agree with. I mean, this is this to me is sort of one of the great debates of our time. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I, I think there is a way to endorse free speech and open dissent and disagreement and to say we may not agree with her views on everything, her being me, uh, but we support her right to speak out. And I, and I would just state that privately people did agree with me. It was really just considered too controversial. And in answer to your prior question about my husband, you know, we don't agree on everything. I don't think any um, married couple does. He doesn't work there. So I, I, for, to my mind, it's, it's sort of irrelevant. Right. I, I, it br brings to mind the issue of, of the Conway family, uh, Kellyanne and George, of course. But se separately, I just wanted to ask you, there have been uh, some comments that Levi Strauss, the company, has made uh, since your essay was published, uh, disputing a couple of things. And I just wanted to ask you about it so we could try to clear it up. Uh, in, in, in the essay, you said that they had made a million dollar offer effectively for you, you to leave. Uh, they effectively say that's not true. Uh, in the essay, you also say uh, that you were effectively offered the job or told that you were going to get the job of CEO uh, of the company, that you were in line for that role. Uh, they say that you were not offered the CEO position. I don't know if you think that's splitting hairs in terms of the language they're using, but speak to it if you could. I would say it is splitting hairs a little bit. I would agree. I was not officially offered, but it was definitely the conversation that I was in line and I was the primary candidate. And I think all you have to do is look at the structure of the organization to understand that in the chair that I sat, I was absolutely one of the most viable candidates. So, I, you know, I, 
I, I don't dispute that there was not an official offer. There were active conversations that I was the primary candidate, but that I needed to tone it down uh, in regards to my advocacy for children. And, and how do you think about going public now? And, and the reason I ask is obviously uh, you're no longer in this in this role, I imagine. And we could talk about it, whether you want to get back into uh, cor- the corporate world. Maybe you want to get into the political world. I don't know. Uh, but in terms of the calculus to go public with this? Well, I definitely don't want to get into the political world. <laughs> so I can answer that definitively. My plan right now is not to go back into corporate life. I think, um, as you state, it's a, a sticky situation. And I don't want to be held back in saying what I believe. And if those are the conditions of employment, if standing against the orthodoxy or the mainstream view means um, that that's an HR violation, I I will choose not to work in corporate America so that I can retain my voice. My plan, uh, I'm sort of gathering myself as to what's next. Um, I would like to make a documentary. I made one in the past called Athlete A that came out in June of 2020. And I would like to write a book that just is about the experience of using your voice in difficult situations and how, how hard that is. Jennifer, what, what do you recommend to employees who may have views that are, run counter to a company's, let's say, culture or, or, or an internal view, who may not have the means that you do uh, to step away? Yeah, that's a fair. I, I mean, I, I am lucky. I was able to step away. I can take a breath and decide what I'm going to do next. Here's what I would say. The San Francisco voters voted decisively to recall the school board uh, just two days ago. So I would say there was a silent majority that actually did agree with me. And if those folks had felt they could speak up, what I was saying would not have been so controversial. So I would argue and encourage folks to speak up on issues that they care about that affect their family. If it was clear that there were a lot, there was a lot of support for my view, I don't think it would have been so problematic, but people were afraid to do so for fear of recrimination like, like I received. Jennifer Say, we really appreciate uh, you joining us this morning for, for, uh, for saying what you've said, uh, and we look forward to, to following your next steps. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Becky, do you, you argue with your husband? I mean, you, you guys agree Never. on everything? With, with Qu- See, my house, wow, um, with my wife and especially my daughter, very contentious. They are so far right. I mean, they're so much, oh. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot. It's a lot of uh, tension. And that's the pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.